All right, Psalm 40. This evening, we pick up with another Psalm of David. We're told here a Psalm of David addressed to the chief musician. So again, as we see these inferences that these Psalms, these poems were delivered by David, by the inspiration of the Spirit, particularly at times to the chief musician. Uh, that could be Asaph. There was another man named Judithan. There was another name actually named what we would pronounce He-Man, not the cartoon character from years ago. Uh, but uh, in the Bible, we see these different musicians that were appointed, that provided leadership over the congregation and the musical celebrations and it seems at times David was a songwriter a composer and he would put together these songs remember the Bible tells us in David's early days that he would play upon a harp and so David seems to be someone who was a worshiper and a songwriter and uh, it seems particularly when he's giving these uh, poems of his to the chief musician that certainly they were intended to be put to music as we said at the beginning of our study in the book of Psalms that this is sort of the Jewish hymnal many of these psalms that we know were actually used and still are used musically to be sung unto the lord and this seems to be another one we don't always know the tune or the melody but david here opens this psalm by saying to us verse one i waited patiently he says for the lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry he also brought me up, he says, out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my steps, or made firm my path, the idea there is. He has put a new song, David says, into my mouth, praise to our God, many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. So as David opens the psalm, you can tell he's celebrating the deliverance of God, a time in his life where he was in a very, very difficult spot, where he was in a real time of hardship and personal struggle. It seems it was a very dark and difficult time for David, and yet as he cried out to the Lord, God intervened. He stepped in. He rescued him out of that situation that he was in there. Uh, and as a result, we see him kind of celebrating that reality. Uh, he mentions particularly, notice in verse 2, what was going on. He tells us the circumstances. He says that the Lord had brought him up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. So whether this was a literal pit or it was just as David often does in a artistic or poetic way is using an analogy here of like we talk about, you know, uh, I feel like I'm in the pits. Uh, it was a book written years ago, wasn't it? You know, if life is a bowl of cherries, then why do I feel like I'm stuck in the pits or something like that? It wasn't a book like that it was out years ago. Uh, and so at times we use that kind of language, man, I just really feel like I'm in a pit right now. I just really feel like I'm stuck in this dark and difficult pit. And that's what David's describing. And very likely he's talking about a circumstantial situation he was in, maybe even a mental or emotional state that he was in. He just felt like he was in the pit of depression or maybe, you know, just very discouraged, feeling like he was despairing over something. Maybe he was going through a very hard time. There were different seasons that David went through, though he was a man of God, just like Elijah and Joseph and others and Daniel. 
who people who loved the Lord and served God, and yet at times they went through very dark valleys and difficult circumstances. We're not immune from circumstantial problems, nor are we immune, I believe, from mental struggles and times when our thoughts and our feelings begin to make us wrestle. You know, we sing one of those worship songs, my thoughts deceive me, my feelings lie. They're always drifting like an ocean tide, but I'm anchored deep in your great love, right? We just sang that song even this evening as Chris led us through in regards to, you know, how peace like a river attends our soul and and it's well with our soul. Those sorrows like sea billows may roll and we may go through difficult times, but yet we can, you know, ultimately find this peace within us, but it doesn't make us immune from going through those times. And so David here speaks of how at times in his life, he found himself in a pit. And notice, not just a pit, he calls it, verse 2, a horrible pit. <laughs> a horrible pit. He says, I just wasn't in a pit. I was in a horrible pit, man. He said, it was horrible. The experience, the way that I felt, what my mind was going through. He says, it was like I was stuck in the miry clay. Now, it's interesting When we do go through the word of God, we find occasions where servants of the Lord were literally cast into a pit. And God allowed that, right? Joseph, remember? Joseph, this young man who loved the Lord and faithfully sought to do what was right. We're told that Joseph's brothers hated him and his family literally, remember, it says they threw him down into a pit. And there he was crying and begging that his family would take him out of this pit. And they kept him literally in this little you know, prison cell of a pit until they sold him off to a bunch of uh, Midianite traders, which took him off to Egypt. And then from there, guess what happened? He fell into a bigger pit. And his life really went through the pits once he got to Egypt. He went through difficulty after problem, ultimately found himself unfairly incarcerated. I mean, but again, all those things God was using to bring him from the pit ultimately to the very place that God wanted him to be for such a time as this. And in one day, remember, Joseph in one day went from the pit to what? To a palace. In one day. His life was the pits, the pits, the pits, one problem after another. I mean, he just was going through unfortunate circumstance after another. And then in one day, when the right circumstances came together and all of God's timing came to pass, here comes them asking, hey, We need you to help. We heard you can interpret a dream. He comes, he interprets a dream for Pharaoh and in one day literally finds himself the prime minister of Egypt and and elevated to a palace, taken out of a jail and put into a palace and his whole circumstances changed in one day. And you know, sometimes God can do that. Sometimes God needs to allow us to go through the pits and the hardships and the difficulties because sometimes that is a part of the preparation to get us ready and even, listen more, to put us into the place that we ultimately need to be. And we could not get there unless we went through the pit. Remember, the model of Jesus, the cross came before the crown. And you can't have the crown until you endure the cross. And that same pattern many times is for us as well as servants of God. So Joseph was in a pit. Jeremiah the prophet also ended up in a pit. We're told that his faithful communication for the Lord ultimately led him to a place where they became so sick and tired of him speaking the truth. It didn't make people feel good. It wasn't a feeler, friendly, positive message. He was speaking what was righteous in a climate where people in the society and the government did not want to hear the truth. And ultimately they said, look, just 
get rid of this guy. And it says they lowered him down into a pit, literally, interestingly enough, of, of mud. It literally says that the muck and the mud came up literally to his you know, middle leg area, and there he was just sitting there in wet, nasty mud. And imagine what Jeremiah was thinking, right? He's thinking to myself, this is what I get? Lord, I obey you. I obey your will. I faithfully follow and do what you want me to do. I, I spoke your word with integrity and faithfulness, and this is the reward I get? Lord, this is how you reward one. But again, this was a part of the process of what Jeremiah went through. It was something God allowed in his life, but yet ultimately God orchestrated. And as you read the prophet Jeremiah, you see how God used that as well for his ultimate purposes in Jeremiah's life. And then, of course, we can't forget as well to round out three of them. Daniel himself ends up being tossed into a pit. You remember the pit Daniel was tossed into. It wasn't miry clay. It was what? A pit of pit of lions, right? I mean, that's not much better. And again, Daniel, because of his faithfulness to the Lord, what was Daniel's situation? They, look, we're going to make a law, and they convinced the, the king and who was in charge. Look, we, they didn't like Daniel, and, and they didn't like him because of his righteous stance, though he was a faithful servant of God. So they said, look, why don't you make a law that anybody who prays to anyone but you, they should be put to death and cast into the pit of the lion's den and, and, and put to death. And so Daniel got the edict. His government told him, look, you, you can't pray anymore. It's against the law. We're telling you, we, we, you're not allowed to pray anymore. You're not allowed to worship your God. And it says that Daniel heard that news. And it says, as was his custom, he continued to obey God's authority, even rather than the governmental authority. He went back up to his room and he just opened his windows and started praying to God. And ultimately they came in uh, and they grabbed him and threw him into the den of lions. But ultimately what happened? God preserved him. God protected him. He did what was obedient and right to the greater king and the higher authority in his life. And as he was thrown down into the lion's den, the king was feeling horrible because he realized he'd been duped by his advisors who convinced him to do this. And, and, and he waited all night and he rushed there. And in the morning, he discovers Daniel had been protected and preserved. And what happened as a result of that? Daniel ends up being a powerful testimony for the Lord and his power. And ultimately, the king, as he realizes Daniel survived, he says, look, we're changing everything. Everybody needs to worship Daniel's God. Everybody should honor Daniel's God because if a God can save someone like that, then he's worthy of our attention and worthy of our worship. And so, again, God used the pit as the process to get glory for himself and ultimately do a work in Daniel's life as well. So, look. Tonight, if you're in the pits, I don't know. It's possible sometime we can put ourselves into a horrible pit because we do dumb things. And we never want to discount that. And typically when we do something dumb, it doesn't take rocket science to figure out we did something dumb. So that's not usually difficult to figure out. It's the times when you feel like I'm in a horrible pit. I feel like I'm stuck in mud. And, you know, it's like when you're in mud, it's like I can't climb out of it. I can't get myself out of it. Look, whether it's a circumstance whether it's an emotional struggle, a mental struggle, or even a spiritual struggle. David went through this. Daniel went through this. Joseph went through this. Jeremiah went through this. At least you're in good company. And it may be that God is allowing the situation for some purpose, for his greater glory, and to work in your life, or to show you something, or to shape your character, or even maybe to keep you there in that pit 
until he can work out something he wants to work up till ultimately he can pull you out for the purpose he has on the next season of your life. So David, as he's there, he says, I was in a horrible pit. And what did he do? Verse one tells us when he was in the pit, he said, I waited patiently for the Lord. That's what you do. You don't instantly take matters into your own hand. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. I just waited on the Lord. And and he says, and and he inclined to me. He heard my cry. So he just began to pray. And look, when you're in a horrible pit and you feel like you're stuck in miry clay, that's what you do. You begin to just cry out to God. You pour your heart out to him. You ask for his help. You pray for his strength and deliverance. Lord, help me through this process. You just begin to pour out your heart to him. And he says, he heard my cry. He inclined to me. And what does David say? When the time came to pass, he set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. So the Lord brought him up out of the horrible pit. And you know what? The Bible tells us that God does not change. He's not a God of partiality. He loves you just as much. He has the same power. And if you are in a pit, you're in a horrible pit, even worse, God can bring you up out of that pit. You keep praying, you keep trusting the Lord, you keep waiting upon him. And ultimately, like David, he can bring you up out of your pit and he can set your feet back upon the rock that is a stable place once again and begin to give you level ground and begin to establish your steps and begin to give you forward motion once again. And what was David's response to that? Verse three, he says, as a result of this, he has put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God, and many will see it in fear and trust in the Lord. So David's response obviously was worship. He wanted to celebrate God's goodness and God's power and God's faithfulness, not only himself, but before others that would see it and would want to reverence and worship God with him. I love again, as he's made this statement before, he's put a new song in my mouth. So again, David here, the idea of a new song is the the implication is a fresh expression of worship. So a a new song may be in the sense of actually creating a new song, new lyrics, and, and actually a brand new song. And that could be the idea. But sometimes, as we've mentioned this when we saw this phrase before, sometimes a new song in our mouth is a song we already know, but it takes on a whole new meaning. Right. A fresh expression in, in a way, an old song can become a brand new song in our mouth to us. Again, if I can allude back to what we sang tonight, you know, that song, it is well with my soul. I mean, that song has been around for a long time. It's a beautiful hymn. But, you know, there are times in our life where because of what we go through, that all of a sudden you sing a song that you've known for years But because of what you're going through, if you're in a hard time in a difficult situation, or maybe you've gone through the, you know, tragic death of a loved one or deep grief again, and that's what that song was born out of deep grief of losing family members. And all of a sudden, because of what you're going through or what you've gone through, or maybe what God's done, all of a sudden, have you ever had that happen where a song takes on a whole new meaning? And you might have been able to sing that song time and time again before, and you just mouth the words. Now, all of a sudden, you're singing it, and tears are streaming down your face. And you can barely get the words out because it is so fresh, the expression of those words. And I think any of the worship songs that we sing, it's amazing how, depending upon what we're going through or experiencing with God, they can have on a whole new meaning. And I think it's a very beautiful thing when that happens. You know, sometimes I think God, you know, will allow that to transpire so that we don't get into just mechanically singing songs. That's not what God wants. 
He wants there to be passion and sincerity and that we'd even think about what we're saying. So he says, he's put a new song in my mouth in light of this. And he says, blessed, verse four, is that man who then makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. So again, the word blessed simply means you know, to be internally happy. Oh, how happy the idea of the word blessed is. Uh, not just blessed materially, but the idea is a blessed internal experience. And he says, where does that come from? How do you have a blessed internal joy and happiness? He says that comes to the man who makes the Lord his trust. He doesn't trust in himself to be able to fix his situation. He doesn't trust in, again, his government or trust in his friends or even at times trust in his family. He doesn't trust in anyone else. He trusts in the Lord. Because you can rely upon the Lord when you've seen him be faithful before and say, Lord, I can't fix this myself and no one else is going to resolve this. But Lord, you're never limited. You have the power to do all things. And he says, if you want to live a blessed experience, it'll become that person who makes the Lord their trust, their confidence, and that they don't instead turn aside to lies. And again, that's the tough part, right? Is because there are always lies being sent across our radar screen. And we have to use discernment to learn to trust the Lord and not just turn aside with the next lie or the next false information or the next set of facts or the next media blitz. I hate to tell you, but it's not all true. This is what's true. This is what's true. And the spirit of truth, which is what Jesus called the Holy Spirit, that's what's true. Every news broadcast, every media outlet, I hate to break your bubble. It's not all true. This is true. That's why we trust the Lord. We rely upon this and we don't let ourselves turn aside to lies because then you will be deceived as the God of this age continues to orchestrate his plans and purposes through many different channels in this world to just deceive people into the world. And so we have to make sure that our trust is in the right place. We're not turning aside to lies or we won't experience that blessed internal contentedness or happiness. Instead, we'll be agitated and fearful and frustrated. He says, verse five, many, O Lord, my God, are your wonderful works. And boy, how true that is. David could have get a, a, a list. I mean, think of the works that God has done through history, the things he's done in your life. He says, many, Lord, are your wonderful works which you have done. Just reflecting on the wonderful works God's done in human history, that God has done through the church, the wonderful works God's done in your own life. Think of the works of God, the ways that God has worked in your life at different times since you've known him. And he says, on top of that, Lord, your thoughts towards us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare them and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. So David found great encouragement in the fact that God continuously thought upon him. He says, Lord, you are so great and you are doing so many wonderful works, all the things that you've done. And he says, the reason why is because your mind is always on us, Lord. He mentions here how it was such a, encouragement to him that though God is so great and marvelous that God condescends and think about that God's running the universe right I mean, we think we have a lot on our mind 
you imagine what's on God's mind? You know, sometimes we see things transpire and, and so many times I find myself just thinking, man, how many dots did God have to connect to make all those things line up and come together at the moment they did in the way that they did? I mean, can you imagine the coordination process that goes on in God Almighty's mind to do all the wonderful works that he's doing all over the globe and all these people's lives and, and even in your little tiny, minuscule, small little life and world and mine and, and that God's even doing wonderful works in our lives. And he's coordinating things from years ago and months ago and this and that and that. So it's all happening on that day and that hour and this, and he, and he just brings it all together. Why? Because he's always thinking upon us. David says, Lord, your thoughts are so much about us. He said, they're not even able to be numbered, not even able to be numbered. You couldn't even, you know, put together the amount of time that God spends thinking about you. That's how special you are to God. And I want you to consider that for a moment because think about the reality. You know, who's, who's powerful, who's important in this world? And we think, man, be, can you imagine if that person, if they gave the time of day to me or they thought about me or considered my situation, I mean, even the people of greatest power and greatest influence, you know, the, the president of a country, the king of a nation, they can't think about all the citizens in their country, even if they wanted to. They still couldn't. They don't have the capacity to do that. A governor couldn't do that. Your mayor can't think about everybody in their own city. But God the king of the universe whose thoughts towards us are only good to give us a future and a hope and to bless us and help us. He's thinking about you constantly. You're always on his mind and he's always thinking through what's in your best interest and you know, what's going on in your life and how to help and how to assist. That should bring tremendous encouragement to us. And this is what David's reflecting upon. No wonder there was a new song of praise in his mouth. He says, Lord, your, your thoughts towards us, amazing that you think about us, God, though you're so great and awesome and we're so small as just one person on this earth. He then says, verse 6, 7, and 8 here, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. O my God. And your law is written within my heart. Now, David here in these verses reflects upon obviously things that I think God was revealing to him during this time and process. Maybe these were the, some of the things he had to think through and he contemplated when he was in the pit. You know, sometimes when we're in a hard or a dark place and we feel stuck. For a while, we think a little more and we contemplate a little bit more deeply because we're not so preoccupied doing this or doing that. And, and when we go through situations and circumstances, sometimes God allows us to meditate. And, you know, it's often in those difficult times that God reveals things to us as well, right? When Jesus showed up in the midst of the storm with the disciples, he revealed things about himself that they would not have seen if they weren't in the midst of the storm. And sometimes hard times and things we go through have a way of revealing things to us about ourselves and more about God. And here David shares some insights of things that the Holy Spirit revealed to him. He said, God, I, I've come to realize that what you, he says, verse six, desire and not just what God desires. He says, Lord, what you desire and what you require. And notice he says, 
Lord, you don't desire and you don't require. These are things that God does not desire or require. David, interesting, says, think about this, sacrifice, offering, sin offering. These are all things that they were so used to in their religious experiences bringing to God. Hey, this must be what God wants. God wants sacrifices. God wants offerings. God wants us to give us more. He's always wanting something from us. He's always expecting something from us. He's always wanting us to give the next sacrifice, give the next offering. And he said, I realized ultimately, God, that's not really what matters most to you. You know, it's interesting. Remember that ultimately when Saul rebels and Samuel comes and rebukes him, because he was trying to compromise on his obedience by kind of throwing a few bones to God. Well, I mean, I didn't obey God, but I, you know, I mean, I'm I'm, going to at least, I'm going to offer some things to him. I'm going to kind of pay him off. I'm going to bribe God and pay him off. He he says that, that ultimately sacrifice and offering are not what matters to God, but he tells Saul, he says, but your obedience, that's what matters to hearken more than the fat of rams. God wants your obedience. He wants my obedience. And this is what David is saying in our text here. We're notice with me in verse six. He says, God, you don't want sacrifice or offering, but he says, but my ear, my ear you have opened. That's, he realized what God really wanted, an open ear. The Hebrew there literally where he says, my ear you have opened, it's literally a term that means to to dig out or or, or to to bore through. So, I mean, that, that's an interesting picture there. It's almost like David is saying, we are so hard-headed <laughs> that God has to literally like bore through the rock and, and all that's plugging up our ears and to literally kind of do whatever he has to do to get through our hard-headedness as human beings sometimes to get our ear channel open so we what? We'll listen to God that will learn to hear God's voice and that that's who will obey and that's who will respond to. God, it doesn't matter what others do. It doesn't matter what others say. God, what are you saying? Lord, what are you asking of me? What does it mean to obey you and do what's right in your sight? Because see, that's ultimately the key. That ultimately becomes what Jesus says he cares about. He says, my sheep hear my voice. And so as David says this here, he says, that's what you want, Lord, an open ear towards you that I would listen and obey. That's what God wants from us. See, anybody can give sacrifices. Anybody can come through the door and do a religious routine, you know, sit when we're supposed to sit, stand when we're supposed to stand, throw a few bucks of our, you know, resources, you know, do a few religious rituals. I mean, that's easy. That's like just going in and punching your time clock at a job. Uh, that you really don't even like, but you do it because you want the compensation and the reward. You want the paycheck, right? That's not what God wants. God doesn't want us to just punch a time card and do some religious sacrifices. God wants us to have an open ear that listens to him and follows what he asks of our life, that we would live for him. And this is what David was learning through this process. You know, it's interesting, more than likely, the analogy he's also using here when he says, my ears you have opened, is perhaps even a reference to Exodus chapter 21, because in Exodus chapter 21, we're told there in regards to the slaves in Israel, a process that would happen from time to time. You could only be a slave in Israel for up to seven years, and then you were set free if you had sold yourself into slavery to pay a debt. But listen to what it tells us in Exodus chapter 21, a provision God made. 
He says, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. In the seventh year, he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and she's born him sons and daughters, then they shall go out. He shall go out by himself. But Exodus 21 verse five. But if my servant plainly says, I love my master and my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall pierce his ear, put a hole in his ear with an awl and he then shall serve him forever. So it was a practice that if you as a slave had a master that you loved and you said, you know what? I'm not serving this master out of obligation. I actually have come to love my master. I love having this master rule over me. It's better when he rules over me than when I rule over myself. I've got a good life serving him. This is a great thing. I'm enjoying serving him. I don't want freedom to go out and live however I want to. I want to stay here and serve under this master. I want him to rule over my life and I get pleasure out of serving him. Then the way they would handle that is you would as an act of demonstrating your willing sacrifice of your life to serve that master's purposes forever. They'd bring you to a door and they would, verse six, open your ear. They would pierce your ear with an awl. And the idea is that you are permanently connected to your master's house. And they put a little earring in. Yes, men wore earrings, but for a much different reason in the Old Testament. And that earring indicated you were a willing bondservant, that you chose out of desire to serve that master. It wasn't an obligation. You did it because you wanted to follow him. And of course, this becomes the picture of what God wants from us, that we would be willing bondservants unto the Lord and to our Lord Jesus Christ. David says, verse seven, and then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. So David had come to realize in the scroll of the book, the scrolls of the word of God, he says, I found in there as I considered the word of God that it was written of me. So as David read the word of God, what was David realizing? As he read the word of God, he started to realize this is telling me a lot about my life, myself. This book and what it says that God wrote and gave to us, yeah, that that's my life. That's me. And, and it was speaking to him in personal ways. And isn't that our own experience, if we're truly willing to get into the word of God, we realize as we read the scroll of God's word, we realize that much of all that's written there, it's about us. And it starts saying things to us personally. You start realizing, man, that is my life. That, that's real. That's personal. That's exactly what I'm going through. And we learn a whole lot about ourselves when we go through the word of God, as well as learning a whole lot about God. He also teaches us a whole lot about ourselves and our need for him and how to have a relationship with him and serve him. And that's why David says in verse eight, I delight to do your will, O my God. Again, it's not an obligation to serve you. He says, it's an enjoyment, a pleasure. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is written within my heart. So what David's saying there is that this obedience, this newfound desire to obey the Lord came not from a sense of obligation or duty, He's saying, what I have come to discover is there's an inner prompting within me now by pleasure to want to serve God rather than finding instead sort of this outward persuasion to conform to religious routines. And see, there's the difference between religion and relationship. David said at one time, to a degree, it was, it was just outward pressure to conform 
to religious obligations. These are the things you must do to be a good religious boy. This is the law. You must follow this. Keep these codes. Follow these standards. And David said, I'm experiencing a shift in my heart. Now I delight inwardly. There's this internal prompting that enjoys doing your will, God. I want to do your will. I want to follow you. And ultimately, that's where God wants to bring us. As his law becomes noticed, he says, written not on the tablets of stone, but written on my heart. God writes his will on the fleshly tablet of your heart. And look, that's a good place to be, to walk with God in obedience, where you have an internal desire because the word of God and his law and what governs you is ingrained in your heart internally. And then your desires and your decisions and your perspectives and even what you do or don't do is governed by the law of the spirit of life being engraved on your heart where you obey God out of good desire for him rather than compulsion and pressure and obligation. And David describes this. And this is really where we want to come to. You know, a lot of times we wonder, I wonder what God's will is. I wonder what God's will is. Well, the Bible tells us the commandments of the Lord aren't burdensome. And so really, we should find ourselves delighting to do that which is the will of God. Remember the movie years ago, what was Chariots of, of Fire? And it was about that guy that he was a runner. And he made a statement, something, and forgive me if I botch it many, many years ago. But he said something along the lines of, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. And the whole idea was, in essence, he was saying, part of the way God made me is I'm made to be a runner. That's just who I am. And so he said, when I do the thing that God made me to do, the primary purpose for my life and a part of who I am, just the way he wired me, he says, I feel pleasure. I feel the sense of the pleasure of God because I sense I'm in full cooperation with who God made me and what I'm supposed to do. And look, when you're doing the will of God, one of the ways to know what God's will is for your life is you should begin to find a degree of delight in it and enjoyment and internal pleasure. I, I enjoy doing this. Well, then maybe that's God's will for your life. If you enjoy it, that's a probably a good indication. It's that internal prompting of God's spirit written upon your heart of what you're supposed to do. Now, verses 6 through 8, I encourage you, read Hebrews chapter 10. You'll notice there at a certain point in time, not right now, but Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews takes these three verses from Psalm 40 and he quotes them and, and he relates them directly to our Lord Jesus. So was David describing his own personal experience as a worshiper of God? Yes. But the Holy Spirit was also speaking through David in a prophetic way about the Messiah. And there is nobody these verses refer to more clearly than our Lord Jesus as the Messiah and the Savior, even more than David, who was writing these things about his own experience. Think about it. Jesus himself, and the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, quotes these verses of how Jesus himself fulfilled these things, and they were personal of his own life, that Jesus knew that sacrifice and offering was not what the Father desired, but that the Father had opened the ear of his Son, because what did Jesus say? I always do those things that please the Father. Jesus lived a fully obedient life. He was a complete servant to his father's will. What did Jesus say? He said, not my will, but your will be done, Father. And Jesus himself understood what it was like. Verse 7, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. In the word of God, it's written of Jesus. Numerous times you see Jesus in the gospel accounts where he would refer to passages of scripture 
and as he would refer to passages of scripture, he would quote them. And I think of the one occasion in Luke's gospel where Jesus quotes from uh, Isaiah 61. And he says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me to preach good news to the poor and to open the eyes of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And he begins to quote from Psalm 60 or Isaiah 61 there. And then afterwards he closes up the scroll of Isaiah and he says, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he's saying, I'm the personal fulfillment because that in the scroll is written of me. That's who that was talking about. And so Jesus himself could say better than anyone in the scroll of the book, it is written of me and Jesus delighted to do the will of the father and his law. The law of God was upon the, the savior's heart. And again, so just beautiful. And I encourage you as you're familiar now with Psalm 40 to take that and, and for homework, read through Hebrews 10 and see how the writer there uses it to speak about the life of Christ and what he has done as he came to the earth. Verse nine, he says, and I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. So David says, I didn't hold back from telling and sharing this great news about the righteousness of God among the great assembly in the multitudes. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips. O Lord, you yourself know. David says, I couldn't hold back from sharing the testimony of the great things God did for me, and we shouldn't as well. He says, I've not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I've not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. So what's one of the reasons we now see here, verse nine and 10, why God worked in David's life? So that David would have a story to tell other people about God. He could tell people about God's faithfulness, how God took him out of the horrible pit and delivered him out of the miry clay and how God did that for him and worked in his life and showed him great things. And he says, Lord, I didn't hold back. I declared, I told people about your salvation. And you know what? God works in my life and your life so that we would have a testimony. And sometimes the reason for the test is so that you then have a testimony. Those two always go together so often. Sometimes the main reason why the horrible pit happens or we go through the tests that we may is so that you then have a testimony and you can tell other people in a real and relatable way, listen, I went through this health issue and this is what it was like and it was hard and, and, and yeah, I struggled and this is what God did for me and this is how I navigated or I went through this difficult domestic situation in my family and this is what happened, but, but let me tell you what God did for me. Man, I was in a horrible pit. But this is what God did, and he intervened, and he worked. Or, you know, I went through this health issue or this loss of a person, and we then have a testimony to be able to share with people, and that's why God lets us go through those things, so that we have something to share. If not, what are we doing? If we don't have those stories to share of the reality of what God did, all I'm sharing is what? Just theoretical information. It's just information. You know, I found many times over the years to begin, as you get to know the flock that you're caring for and shepherding, at times to take notice of occasions when somebody's going through something and, and the recollection goes, I know exactly who in the church family I need to get to talk to this person. Because see, you know as well as I do, just using one illustration, there's nobody that will be more effective to be able to look into the eyes of someone else who just heard you have cancer than to take someone else who's heard those same words six months ago, a year ago, six years ago, whatever, 
who went through those exact same things to look at them and say, I understand. See, somebody else can just share theological truths, and I'm not saying they're not valuable, but there's something powerful when you can share testimony. And you can share your own experience because that comes from a heart that's raw and real and people resonate with that. So David prays, Lord, do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord, he says. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. Lord, I know this isn't the first challenge I'll go through. So Lord, may you lovingly and kindly continue to preserve me through your truth. For innumerable evils, he says, have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I'm not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. So David, even at this process, through the humbling experience, he came more aware of his own depravity before God. He describes here in verse 12 again, the reality of not innumerable evils just being all around him, making it difficult, the temptations and the pressures. But he says, Lord, my own iniquities, he says, They're more than the hairs of my head. He's saying, God, I realize through the hard times how absolutely broken I am as a person, how sinful I am, how depraved I am, my own sins, God. He says, I I came to confront the own reality of my own sinfulness. It causes my own heart to fail. But he says, verse 13, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. He knew only God could deliver him from that problem of his own sinfulness. O Lord, make haste to help me. Hurry up, God. And when we want God's help, that's usually the way we pray. Lord, hurry up and deliver and help me. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion, he says, who seek to destroy my life. Let them be driven backward and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Sometimes in David's life, he had people who were seeking to notice destroy his life, who wished evil upon him. And he says, God, notice, Let them be confounded because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. So what does David do? He prays to God and he says, Lord, you know, I have these enemies. You know, I have these people who are trying to harm me. They're working in opposition to what you're trying to do in my life. And he just says, Lord, would you just deal with them? Rather than take matters into his own hand, he says, Lord, may you just deal with them because of the wrong things they're trying to do to me, again, as your child. And again, that, David's smart there. He realizes that God's a loving father, right? <laughs> I mean, and you know, when I was growing up, if somebody did something to me and, and I needed help, you tell your father well, instantaneously, he's irate, you're his kid, right? You're not gonna harm my child. And, and any father understands that reality. So David says, uh, Lord, these people are, are mistreating me. They're doing wrong things to me. And I'm your son. And he's, and he's pleading, I believe, upon the reality of the loving kindness of the heart of a father and God. And, and I think we need to remember that from time to time. You know, there have been times over the years where things have happened, situations have transpired, whether it's personally or, you know, a church situation. I can think of a few different occasions where some things happened. And, uh, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, and even well-meaning Christians, well, you're not going to do anything. You're gonna, and, 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 and sometimes I literally, in all sincerity, not trying to be hyper-spiritual, I found myself with the peace to just say to people, you know, I actually really feel bad for that person. Because I'm a father. And if somebody does something to one of my kids, that's a death wish. And God's a much bigger, stronger, loving father than I am. And I'm one of his kids. 
And so God knows what's happened to me, and I actually, I actually shudder for that person. <laughs> I actually feel bad for them because God's going to deal with them somehow. I don't know how and when, but he's a father. And so sometimes I think we can just kind of rest in that reality, and that's why it's good to pray and just bring those things to the Lord, and that's what David does here. He concludes the psalm, verse 16, saying, Let all those, however, who seek you, what's that? Prayer, seeking God, rejoice and be glad in you. Lord, may those who seek you and pray be glad and rejoice. Let such as love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. And the idea is, may the Lord be great. That's what magnified means, right? When you magnify something by looking at it under a microscope, what's there is still the same thing but it now looks much bigger and you can see it in a much clearer and greater way. And that's the idea. The Lord be magnified. God, may you be seen all the more clearly of how big and great you are. And I think we need to more and more seek to magnify the Lord because a lot of times, if I were to be honest, I have a much too small view of God. And we need to realize God is not the small God that we often reduce him to thinking he's a little bit stronger than us or a little bit bigger than us. No, he's God. And we need a way more magnified view of God. He says, God, I am poor and needy, not materially. David was quite wealthy. He's talking about the condition of his soul. Lord, I am in poverty and I'm a needy man. Hope you can relate to that. I can. Yet, he says, the Lord thinks upon me. God, you are my help and you are my deliverer. Do not delay, Lord, oh my God. And let's pray together.